I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It was Saturday, October 30, 1982, and the Australian team walked from the field at Booth Ferry Park Hull in triumph, having decimated Great Britain 40-4 in the first test of the 1982 Kangaroo Tour. By the end of that tour... The visitors had earned a new name, the Invincibles, and for the losing home side, the realisation that they were not in the same universe as their major rugby league rivals had been made crushingly apparent. The next decade would see a series of attempts to bridge the gap, making changes both on-field and off, before an Australian media war in 1995 brought in the biggest change of all. This is part one of Chapeltown Road, the 28th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I have to, at the top, apologize for the delay in getting the next Super League chapter out. This has been a really tough one to prepare. This is our long-awaited English chapter, and it's taken a lot of work to try to get this part of the story right. Uh, It's something that, like you and I, like obviously we have an appreciation of the English game and... You know, it's not like we know nothing about English football, but it's just such a different culture, a different history, a different experience that it's really tough for us to do it justice. Well, your talk with uh, Tony Collins on our Patreon, uh, the legendary historian, English historian Tony Collins, and our talk with Mike Mihal Woods has opened my eyes up to how much of the minutiae of English rugby league that we know nothing about. Yeah, exactly. And that's why... You know, that's why I had to talk to Mike and have to talk to Tony. And we've got uh, some more of that coming up. But as illustrative as those interviews were, what they really made apparent is that there's no way that we can adequately tell the story of English Rugby League leading up to and then, you know, going into Super League. It takes that understanding of the minutiae to be able to do it justice. So this really is going to be a surface level exploration in many ways. So uh, I would have had to have done the same level of research from the English side as we did on the Australian side. And, you know, it would have taken us 10 years to get it out if we were going to do that. So, (laughs) Well, I saw how much you've done for this. So, mate, it's uh, I wouldn't be apologising. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot I learned in the course of this research and a lot of really interesting things to talk about. I don't want to sell us short because I'm really looking forward to getting into all of this with you. Uh, But I did want to say for this second season, you might have noticed I haven't been doing the book recommendations each episode. The main reason for that has been that a lot more of my research for season two has been based around newspapers and magazines like the coverage of the time. Uh, There's various reasons for that, but this chapter is an exception. So right at the top, I want to just talk about a few sources that were really instrumental for me in putting this chapter together. Mm. Uh, I'm going to start with Tony Collins. And of course, uh, 
his many books. I also, as we mentioned, sat down with an interview with Tony. So our Patreon subscribers have heard that already. Um, the rest of our listen- listenership will hear my interview with him at the conclusion of this chapter. So it was a really fantastic chat I had with him that built off uh, you know, his many books on the subject. So Rugby League in 20th Century Britain was particularly important, but anything Tony Collins has written comes with a huge recommendation. Like, he is the guy in terms of rugby league history. Beyond Tony, Richard Della Riviera, his book, Rugby League Critical History, was a great help. And in actual fact, he put his copy of a document we're going to talk about at the back end of this episode, Framing the Future. He put his copy of that for auction on eBay. So I won that auction. So not only his published works, but also his personal collection have helped to inform this chapter. Uh, And then lastly, the last book I want to specifically shout out is Mark Flanagan's book on the Invincibles, which like was a fantastic read that was a great help for this chapter. So a lot of really good stuff to read if you're interested in English rugby league history. Fantastic. And I want to start this chapter with a quote that Gary Schofield wrote uh, in the foreword to Richard Della Riviere's book. Uh, So I'm just going to read this. Unlike other major sports, rugby league has never been sure of its direction, but still manages to produce an endless stream of magnificent entertainment. Such a brilliant quote. And it works for both hemispheres, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, But I think it's particularly true of English rugby league. And it's, um, you know, definitely a source of frustration from all of the authors I've mentioned already and and us just as observers, you can see this constant struggle to work out what the identity of the game is and the direction they should be heading in. I think it's more, it's a nicer way of saying with all the gunshots to the feet, they still manage to survive. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And again, something very true in both hemispheres. (laughs) But so we're starting our story with 1982 and the arrival of the Invincibles in England. And I think it's hard. This is one of those situations where those cultural differences come into it because in everything I read, 1982 from the British side just holds this outsized importance where any story that talks about the modern game will will tend to start there and talk about everything that led up to it and everything that came out of it, which I don't think it has nearly that same place in Australian rugby league culture. Well, what year was the um, cleaning up of the game, the Kevin Humphreys year? So that was 83. Yeah, so that was, that was like our modern, modern game fulcrum, I think. Yeah, yeah. So with that tour, with the Australian team going undefeated and you know really highlighting the gulf between the two sides, it's not that it was lamented by you know great British rugby league fans and commentators. I think there was a real appreciation for the skill of that Australian team. But it definitely led to all of this soul searching and, you know, a lot of effort being put into making sure it would never happen again, which, of course, it did happen again four years later, but we'll cover all of that. (laughs) But there's no, like, from the Australian side, there's no similar kind of appreciation of how good that team was and, you know, all the work we'd done to get there as a team. Like, it just seems to be, from the Australian side, like, one of those things that happened. I didn't realize how much of a seismic impact that had on English rugby league until your research and the Tony Collins talk and speaking to Mike and that sort of thing. So that's why it's so legendary. Because I was always saying like that side is not any better than the '86 side or the '90 side or the '94 side, really. But 
given that the impact they had on the game over there, and it was the first undefeated team, that's why it's still the best. Yeah, and I do want to have that talk about where that team rates in you know comparison to the next three Australian teams. I think in that Invincibles book by Mark Flanagan, Tony Collins writes the forward to that and uh, dubs them not only the greatest rugby league team, but one of the great sporting teams. He compares them to Pele's 1970 Brazilian team, the 1905 All Blacks, and the American Dream Team in the 1992 Olympics. There's one point where I've got to uh, disagree with the great Tony Collins. I don't know how Max Krilich would have fit on the Dream Team, you know what I mean? But <laughs> maybe, he could, maybe he could have had the Christian Leitner spot. Well, see, I saw that in your notes, and I was thinking along the same lines. I think Leitner's an unfair comparison because he was there as the college representative. But the one that I think has some relevance is Chris Mullen, who was, you know, very well respected and, and had a great career. And at that time in the NBA was, you know, he was, you know, one of the top 10 or 20 players, uh, best flat top in NBA history. <laughs> what about that left shrimp? <laughs> that, that, that's up there too. But, I mean, to a younger NBA fan now who wasn't there, if you were to look back at that list, I mean, I do think Chris Mullen does stand out as like, oh, okay, Chris Mullen was there. It's funny, though, because you talk to old-timers and they really do rate Krillich. Yeah, and I don't have it singled out, but one of the match reports I read about that time talked about Krillich getting beaten in the scrums and saying, well, he wasn't a great scrummaging hooker, but his general play and what he added to that team meant that the scrummaging didn't really matter. And so you can see him as in that evolution of the position of hooker going from the just walking between scrums to, you know, getting into the Eliases and the Walters, um, you know, and obviously leading the way to to Cameron Smith and, and whoever else now. So it was a position that was changing and Max Krilich was maybe part of that evolution. Yeah. But when I read that about um, comparing the 82 squad to the the Invincibles to the Dream Team, it's like well, there's debates whether they're better than 86 and 90, <laughs> let alone the Dream Team. But um yeah, I, I, get, I get his point. It was a, it was a bloody good team. <laughs> and I think the greater point is that with 1982, not only had it never been done before in terms of a touring team winning every game on tour, let's not forget that in the 1978 tour, Australia lost to Whitney's and Warrington in addition to losing one test match. So this was really, really unprecedented, but just the, the scale of the victory. So... The total points difference on tour was Australia scored 1,005 to 120 against. This was in the the three-point try era. They conceded 10 points only once, which was against Hull KR in their first match on tour. The Great British team scored one try, you know, in the course of those three tests, that coming in the third test. Like, you can't undersell how dominant they were. And even in 1986, where they did the same feat and won every game, it wasn't to anywhere near the same difference in you know in the two sides. Well, the, in your notes, the point was that the difference in training between the two teams, the professionalism, they were just, you know, it was a quantum leap compared to what was coming before. So then the, and the British were shell-shocked by it. We're going to break all that down. There's a lot to talk about there. But I, I think the thing to keep in mind is, when you're talking about, you know, which is the best tour squad and, and were they the dream team and all the rest of it, it's like, yes, you could argue that the team basically got successively better 
with each touring squad that went over. The difference was that, A, like we kind of got used to the idea of the Australian team being really good. B, the, you know, Great Britain happened to unearth a generation of brilliant players shortly after that 1982 tour that meant that the golf wasn't as big on field. And three, they got their systems right, their coaching and training right to, even when they were outclassed, they could still run with the Australians and win the odd game. Yeah, it was so lucky that that generation come along as it could have been very bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I want to touch on that, whether it was luck of having these players coming through or whether the systems they put in place, you know, helped to create that change. But let's just stay on the four squad. So I'll just read out the 1982 squad for, you know, people who aren't aware of who the Invincibles were. So, you know, the coach was Frank Stanton. You had Captain Max Krillich. Wally Lewis was vice-captain. Then you had Chris Anderson, Kerry Bostead, Les Boyd, Greg Brentnell, Ray Brown, Greg Canescu, Steve Eller, Eric Groth, Rowan Hancock, Brett Kenny, Paul McCabe, Don McKinnon, Mal Meninga, Gene Miles, Rod Morris, Steve Mortimer, John Muggleton, Mark Murray, Wayne Pierce, Ray Price, Rod Reddy, John Rebo, Steve Rogers, Ian Schubert, Peter Sterling, and Craig Young. A real 70s and then young blood of the 80s mix. Yeah, so you definitely had some all-time greats in that team. And in a lot of cases, these were players who were just emerging. So, I mean, obviously Peter Sterling and Brett Kenny had already won two premierships, so they were well-known and Australianized. But going over to England, there was a sense of like, who are these guys? And, you know, they quickly made it apparent who they were. And Sterling actually went over as a presumed backup to Steve Mortimer, but, you know, made himself the, the star halfback by the, the time of the first test. Has there ever been a kangaroo tour where the halves didn't flip? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> whilst on tour? Yeah. But, I mean, again, that speaks of the quality of the Australian team that you have Kenny and Lewis battling, you have Langer and Stewart battling. Like, you know, you're never going to be too safe in your position. Well, we had a poll on our social medias prior to recording and put the test teams up for all the um, tours. And 86 seems to be the most popular one, right, player-wise. But I think you put it very eloquently that they were the first. But, yeah, just the impact they had on, on the sport, I think they get the nod, 82, the Invincibles. They get the nod. I do kind of think that 86, just in terms of the number of immortals and the players really at their peak. So, like, you know, Wally Lewis in 1982 – Brett Kenny had forced him to be coming off the bench. And, you know, by 86, it was like Lewis at 5'8", Kenny in the centres. You had, you know, Gene Miles pushing Mal Meninga to the second row. I can definitely Just see a case Embarrassment eight, of riches. Yeah, 86 <laughs> being the best of all. But, I mean, how do you pick one of those four touring squads? You know, you get to 94 and suddenly you've got, you know, Daly Stewart and Brad Clyde take your pick for the best player in the world out of those three. Then you had Brett Mullins, who was in the midst of, you know, one of the greatest two-year runs of all time and talent everywhere all around him. So if you look at those squads, right, it shows the problems in comparing eras because each squad subsequent had the benefit of coaching improvements, uh, size, weight training, all the rest of it. Coaches going to American NFL teams. Yeah, yeah. So you just can't compare, but the Invincibles did it first. Yeah, and were just uh, impressive in every test. So obviously the first one at Hull won 40 to 4, won the second test 27 to 6, and that was being down to 12 men for 55 minutes of the game. 
of that touring squad, could you hazard a guess as to which player was sent off? <laughs> it wasn't Les Boyd by chance, was it? <laughs> it, it, it very much was. I, I loved this in the Rugby League Review, which was an annual publication put out in Britain. So that covered the Kangaroo Tour that year. Described Les Boyd as a formidably powerful player with an unusually low boiling point. <laughs> very low. <laughs> But the nicest block off the field you could ever Yeah, you know, absolute gentleman. So he was sent off for kicking. Um, word was that it wasn't his go. <laughs> and then winning the third test, 32 to 8. So as I said before, England scoring their only try in that test match, but never being in the hunt. So, I mean, it was a pretty resolute victory in all three tests, tests for the Australians. Very impressive. That same uh, rugby league review noted that a mood of pessimism settled on the British game after the departure of the 1982 Australians. Reading that, I was like, oh, you think? They seem to have a pessimistic view of the game to start with, let alone afterward. Uh, and I think you can blame a lot of that on their stupid media, their tabloid media, always death-writing their squads you know, in whatever sport, <laughs> unless they win and then they lord them forever. And at the same time, always came to make these grand pronouncements. Like, you know, I think of the 1989 Ashes cricket team who you know england described as the worst touring team of all time <laughs> only to to be trounced and, and australia take the ashes home so you know th- there was some similar talk here and, and you know some of that was coming from australia like ian walsh said it was a, a mediocre touring squad but i think there were some people in the game who were ready for how good the australians were going to be but it certainly took some by surprise it's almost unfair shooting fish in a barrel that you got this lean mean you know, old hardheads from the 70s and these young superstars, future immortals coming through. And then they got this, you know, for the time, high-tech training. And they're going over to play blokes that are having a pint before uh, training. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. And so that that is basically what all the talk was after the Australians left, is how did we get here? What went wrong? And And yeah, that was one of the conclusions that they were just better. They were fitter. They were better trained. Everything about the Australian game was more professional and, you know, it just wasn't the same game being played. Can I just make an observation that every time I look at an English squad of any club or national squad, Lee Crooks is in it, no matter what era? (laughs) Seems like from like 78 to 2012. Yeah, no, you're so right, eh? Like I put him in, like when I was like putting players together in preparation for this, I was talking about the players that came through, you know, just after the the 82 team, I was like, is Lee Crooks one of those? Because it just seems like, yeah, he he was just around for years before that and lasted for, you know, a decade or so after. Amazing. So part of the English post-mortem was to try to identify signs they should have seen coming. And the 1978 tour is probably an example of that, where Australia losing a test and losing those two tour games probably papered over some cracks and didn't make it apparent how much better they were. How much did they phone it in to lose to a game, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that tour probably also highlighted some of the off-field issues that were also a factor in, you know, England being behind. So there's a story that the Australian management received their cut of the gate in cash from the clubs after each fixture. But there was a suggestion that the English, you know, clubs were on the make and were like, you know, fudging the figures. And you know, of course not like- they were. <laughs> so it led to Australia stationing non-playing players on the turnstiles to to monitor who was going through. 
<laughs> what a time, right? What a what a you imagine putting like Corey Norman on the gate now. Like, you know? But even back then it's it's not exactly Ernst and Young, is it? You know, for no. um, accuracy. And it wasn't just the turnstiles. There was a, a suggestion that maybe the full time whistle should have blown before it did in one of the games that led to England. Oh, actually, I think it was a touring game where there was a late try scored. So that led to Australia also making sure one of their non-playing players was, you know, watching over the timekeeper <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, this, the Wild West. This is, I know, it's something you you associate with, like, you know, the, the 1908 tour and stuff like that. You wouldn't <laughs> think that... <laughs> Just some crafty old northern uh, working uh, men's club guy with the brill cream. <laughs> going in. It says 5,000, but we'll call it three and a half. Uh, and probably my favourite story of all from the 1978 Kangaroo Tour was Australian manager Jim Caldwell getting into a fight with Paul Weller of the Jam. I've heard he's a real hothead, Paul Weller. Oh, I can imagine it. But So this came from uh, Mark Flanagan's Invincibles book. But apparently Caldwell was moving a table that bumped into one of the other band mem- uh, jam members. So uh, Paul Weller allegedly uh, smashed a glass over his head. Bloody hell. So that led to some other members of the Australian tour party apparently going out to bash Bruce Foxton of the jam later that night. Um <laughs> I love Max Krilich's quote. I was in bed when Alan McMahon and a few of the others knocked on my door and said, quick, get up. We're going to chase a couple of blokes from the jam. <laughs> now, it's not the first Paul Weller fight story I've heard. There's been heaps of them. But I don't know if a English uh, indie rocker can take on you know, Craig Young pound for pound. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, a spindly little um, front man. <laughs> I'm just really hoping now, down in the tube station at midnight, my favourite jam song. I'm now imagining that as being written, uh, you know, Paul Weller thinking about being beaten up by some kangaroos in the tube station. <laughs> so I'm I'm really hoping that was the inspiration. <laughs> oh, classic. There's been quite a few interesting musical sidelines in this uh, in this series. Well, this incident made me think of Steve Mascord's story about a drunk Brett Mullins getting in an altercation with Scott Wheeland of Stone Temple Pilots at their <laughs> hotel uh, during the 1994 Kangaroo Tour. I would equate Mullins to be the Scott Wheeland of the 94 Raiders. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that was a little aside. Altercations with the jam don't really have much to do with either the English or the Australian fortunes going forward, but I couldn't not talk about it. (laughs) So as part of the post-mortem, England had to call into question some of the old like truisms about English rugby league. And the most true of all of those was that Australia, like they might beat us on field, but we'll always be the masters of skill and pure rugby league. And, you know, the beauty of smart forwards, you know, offloading and putting blokes into holes. We, we're always going to be the masters of the skill of rugby league. And, you know, that was made apparent in 1982 that that was not true then and probably hadn't been true for, you know, 20 or so years before that. How embarrassing that you're going to hang your head on that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Brian Snape, who was a, an English rugby league official on that 82 tour even, said that Australia were super fit and strong athletes battering their way down the middle of the field and boring the pants off a decreasing number of spectators. Well, yeah, and, and Brett Kenny and uh, Wally Lewis and uh, 
you know. Yeah, exactly. But like the thing about it is it had been true. And if you think about Australian rugby league in the 50s, you know, St. George in particular, when you think about Ken Carney and Harry Bath in particular coming back from England and teaching St. George the, the, you know, the English way of forward play, that did have a massive influence on the Australian game. But that was 20 years ago. And like, it certainly wasn't the case in 1982. And it just made me think about how often you see that. Like some accepted truth just keep on being accepted for years after it's no longer the case. Well, it's exactly the same as the as the running rugby uh, yeah. falsism. <laughs> yeah. Like there was six games with the Ella brothers in 85 that they <laughs> keep going back to, you know? Like, yeah. It never was true, let alone still is true. <laughs> it's the same as this claim. Yeah, exactly. So that was one myth quashed. So we Britain could no longer hang their hats on the fact that they were more skillful and had a more base-level appreciation for the beauty of rugby league. They just weren't good enough, and the Australians were better at, you know, if you want to call it the British style, the Australians were now better at it. But all this soul-searching and everything, it's not that bad to lose to Wally Lewis and Brett Kenny and Peter Sterling and Ray Price, you know what I mean? Like, I think you're supposed to lose to them. And that just goes to the the second part of this post-mortem, which was just the standard of player was simply like not to the same level. And realistically, I don't think they were, you know, waving the white flag at this point in 1982, but how could it be? When you think about the place of rugby league in England compared to Australia, in my interview with Tony Collins, he made the great comparison of uh, Ryan Giggs's Old Trafford debut was actually as a ball boy for Great Britain during the 1986 tour. So his father was a representative player. Ryan Giggs played rugby league until he was 13, but then he had to choose soccer. So in England, you were always going to lose the best athletes to soccer, you know, if they can play both. In Australia, that's not the case. The best athletes in Queensland and New South Wales, at least, gravitating towards rugby league. I'd have to say he's made a very unwise choice for Ryan Giggs. He could have been playing with Barrow or something. (laughs) (laughs) One of the biggest takeaways from the English perspective was the differences in the quality of training and coaching. So Ray French uh, said, this was in Richard Della Riviere's book. He's looking back at the time. He said, I went over to watch the Australians train and was amazed at the difference. The difference in training to what I'd done, the difference in training to what I'd watched in England at that time. I came away from Leeds thinking, how can we beat these? I then went off to Hull where Great Britain were training in the afternoon. Johnny Whiteley was the coach. He said, before you start, do a couple of laps. And I've never seen an outfit as unfit in all my life. (laughs) How can you have your test team being unfit? Yeah. Like, that's got to be a prerequisite to make the test team, surely to God. And... It goes back to when we did our Frank Hyde history corner many years ago now, and he was talking about in the 40s, analysing the way rugby league players train, saying, you know, a cyclist will prepare for his event by cycling. You know, a boxer will box. A rugby league player runs laps on an oval. (laughs) And, you know, by the 1980s, Australia at least worked it out, but it seems that England hadn't got to that point. Uh, And the great English writer Frank Morehouse, his book, A People's Game, which is a a great history of rugby league, was talking about that difference in training. And he said, 
the Australians were so far ahead in the game, they'd introduced a number of organisational novelties like tackle counts and other match statistics for rigorous analysis. <laughs> like The idea of keeping stats beyond scrum counts was seen as like revolutionary. Oh, my Lord. Scrum counts, I think about that. I'm so glad the game's evolved from that. The funny thing to me is that at this point where the Australian side is being talked about as this, you know, revolutionary at the forefront of advanced modern training techniques, this is like, you know, when people talk about training now, they'll talk about, you know, this period in the 80s of, of training being primitive and players being, you know, more interested in, you know, like drinking schooners at the pub after training. So it, it, yeah. it's funny how it's like this revolutionary thing now, but at that time, but now it's looked on as primitive. Well, yeah, all we hear about is like, you know, Tommy Radonikas and Dallas Donnelly stories yeah. uh, from that era. How bad must England's testing yeah. be for training? <laughs> well, Mal Reilly is the, the classic example. So he talks about going over to Australia and when he got there in the early 70s at training, he was being lapped by Ken Arthurson, who was then a 40-year-old, you know, club secretary. Keeping the rugby league tradition of the, uh, yeah, yeah. Of the elderly administrators running. <laughs> That's, that makes me think. You know, we go back to Frank Hyde's words, you know, like cyclists cycle, boxers box, rugby league players run laps. You know, banking bosses learn about banking. <laughs> you know, like other whatever board it is, they, they study in that. Rugby league administrators run laps. <laughs> run, run laps. <laughs> Well, you got Wayne Bennett, Steve Folks, Ken Arthurson, all running with the um, players. But by the time really went back to England in the mid-70s, you know, he said, coming back after five years with Manly, the difference in fitness levels stood a mile out with the Aussies way ahead. I'd been on holiday and hadn't played for two or three weeks, but I was as quick as the backs, even though I was a forward playing with a bung knee. <laughs> That's not good news. <laughs> But it's one of those things where you'd think, right, what can we control here? They've got all the skill, you know. The one thing we can control is being fit, so we should do that. Yeah. It's like, nah. But that was only part of it. So, you know, that was definitely one thing they could control. But on-field was only ever going to get you so far. They had to look at what was going on off-field as well. And when you look at the state of the game throughout the 1970s, you can see some things pretty obvious then. So Tony Collins notes... 1970 as being the absolute nadir when rugby league was at a real low point you know crowds and finances were really struggling and you know not for the first or last time there were calls as to whether rugby league would survive so things kind of like got a bit better throughout the 70s especially in terms of crowds and an irony i noted was that one of the reasons for improved crowds was the opening of the m62 so that allowed for, for more <laughs> movement between, you know, northern English towns. So, you know, fans could travel, you know, from Wigan to Hull if they wanted to or, you know, whatever in between. But it's just so funny that this thing now that is seen as this real, you know, like <laughs> limiter, you know, we can't How escape this corridor at the time that was like this, you know, it was opening new doors. But, I mean, crowds maybe improved from 1970, but not that much. So by 1980, the top division were averaging less than 5,000, which you know, as you put it, is getting us into hobby territory. Yeah. But this period also, and I guess because of these reduced crowds, it saw the realisation that as David Oxley, who took over from Bill Fallowfield as rugby league boss in 1975, uh, his quote was, 
No club will ever again pay its way through the turnstiles alone. Meaning what? Sponsorships? Meaning sponsorships and the idea that crowd figures are not going to be enough. We need to be able to generate income from other sources. And this is something that had already started to happen with sponsorship coming into the game from about the early 70s. This was made difficult by the fact that rugby league had embraced TV in many ways well before soccer did. I think it wasn't until the mid-80s that soccer actually started allowing their top matches to be played live. Rugby league did that a lot earlier, but that brought into play some complications with sponsorship because the BBC wouldn't allow like jersey sponsors because of their, you know, like no ad policy. What a pain, right? Yeah, yeah. But so they did get around that with more and more clubs starting to have sponsors. One of the problems being, and this is something that we still get today, that sponsors only really want to sponsor successful teams. So it was starting to create a bit of a a gulf between haves and have-nots who could attract sponsors. Other money-making schemes had uh, mixed success. So Salford in the early 70s were, you know, known as being a really innovative team who could make money from unexpected places. So they had a nightclub and a restaurant that were, you know, very successful. So, you know, Canberra couldn't do it with Queanbeyan nightlife, but Salford managed to, <laughs> to do it there. Less successful. I'm picturing the club. I know, I know. <laughs> if there's any listeners out there with any photographic history of that club, please send it through to the email. <laughs> but that was an example of one that worked. One that didn't was Halifax, who tried to put on a rock festival. That's going a bit further than the um, Australian Rugby League property development fixation. Yeah. <laughs> Getting into um, festival promotion. So the headliners were the Bluesack Chicken Shack, who uh, I think she left by this point, but Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac was a one-time member of Chicken Shack. Really? Yep. And uh, a band Tony Collins describes as aging chart toppers, the Tremolos. So, uh, <laughs> silence is golden. Yeah. So they ended up losing over 6,000 pounds on that venture. So, uh, didn't really help them out of trouble. Neither did the constant appeals to fans to help the clubs out. So it ended up being a, a boy who cried wolf situation with the amount of appeals that were being raised. So Huddersfield, for instance, launched two of these survival fundraising initiatives within three years of each other. Incredible. So the fundraising from the clubs was a mixed bag, but the period of the 1970s did see some improvement. So I mentioned David Oxley. Him taking over in 1975 did see some real changes being made. So by when he took over in 1975, the RFL's income was about £4,000. Within a decade, it was over £400,000. So it was clear that something radical needed to be done at the point that he stepped in. But he did go some way to turning things around. Uh, And Mm. it led to the creation of Bala in particular, the British Amateur Rugby League Association in the 1970s. That gave the game a real kick as well. So by the time, you know, the 1980s came, rugby league could legitimately say that it was the fastest growing sport in England. I never liked that fastest growing title. It's like, it's better than nothing, I suppose, but yeah. It doesn't mean a lot, really. You know, because yeah, we, yeah. we, we've, we've seen it with numerous examples in Australia. Baseball, ABL. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's what you do with that title that counts. You know, I think it's a yeah. nice thing to put in your annual report or whatever other, you know, marketing document 
you're using, but you need to capitalize on that. So in itself, it is meaningless. But at this time, there was a feeling that, well, you know, there are some positive signs. Yeah. So that's the interesting part of what was happening at the time the Invincibles arrived. So by the time that tour was over, many of the off-field issues that had played a part in you know, creating this golf had already been rectified at least in part. So, you know, on field, it was, you know, the very bottom of the barrel, but off field, they were in some ways climbing back. But whether they did enough, that's another matter. And so some of the changes brought in, to me, they demonstrate maybe a lack of big picture. So the biggest thing, the thing that kept on being talked about was the introduction of this national coaching scheme. So, They looked at what was happening in England and Australia and noted that Australia in the mid-60s had brought in a coaching standard and it, you know, had an impact on getting all clubs up to a a professional point. And England had nothing similar in place. So they brought in Phil Larder as a coaching director to make some changes to the way that the game was run. You have to be able to talk the talk and have gone through that process. But when you think about, you know, like I think of like Johnny Raper you know, being handed the reins at Newtown by John Singleton, you know, probably over a few beers on a Thursday afternoon at the Henson Park Hotel, <laughs> you know, like yeah. he would have had to have gone through this process, you know, like Tommy Rodonicus yeah. in the mid nineties, dropping ox hearts on the floor, <laughs> you know, at West <laughs> training, you know, like he would have had to have gone through this whole process as well. <laughs> yeah, but when you've got no structure in place, it's a good start. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it was a good start and it was something that was necessary. Uh, so Phil Utter's takeaways were more people must be encouraged to play rugby league. Coaching must be improved at all levels. The fitness, dedication and commitment of professional players must improve. Which, I, I, I mean, I feel like <laughs> you and I could have come up with those three things. I think they should be built into yeah. any professional sporting organisation. <laughs> But so the idea was that these were going to be far-reaching changes that were going to affect every level of rugby league. Met with some resistance and lack of buy-in from clubs with a conference of club coaches held at rugby league headquarters in 1983 uh, called. 14 of the 33 professional clubs failed to send a representative. You know, and this included, you know, Wigan, Whitney's, Bradford, you know, so some of the big clubs were just like, no, nah, can't be bothered. Well, that's the rugby league trope forever as well, these these conferences, the coaches' conferences, and I don't know what benefit they get out of them, but like the feud building and the you know that type of thing yeah. that comes out of it, it's not worth it, <laughs> the collateral damage out of it. it is, you're kind of on a hiding to nothing because all of this stuff is necessary and important, but if nothing comes of it, it just looks like corporate garbage, like just stuff that's being brought in with no substance just to make you look good and look like you're ticking boxes. Well, can we just give the RFL and the ARL a break in the NRL now, a break because look at every cause of every problem. It's always a club-based. If you don't give them a forum to meet up, they're, they're shutting us out. They won't give us a voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give them a voice. I'm not going to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we saw the same thing just a couple of years ago with the, the CEO conference that like, you know, half the league boycotted. So what, what can you do? <laughs> the funny thing is as well is that all of this talk is coming about how we're so far behind Australia, we need to improve our systems and get our structure right. This is coming a year before the incorporation of the league in Sydney and the idea that 
the league here was stagnating and we weren't professional and we weren't keeping up with the times. I know, I know. (laughs) So I think in the next episode, we're going to talk more about the biggest structural issues and the way England, you know, got to where they got with Super League. But let's just focus for the rest of this episode on the English international team on field and look at what those changes to the coaching systems and, you know, improvements in fitness and that sort of stuff, what effect that had on the international game. So the biggest question for me, and this is one I put to Tony and it's it's one I'm going to ask you as well, is so we, we hear all about, you know, these new systems in place and a national coaching standard and we're going to turn this thing around. And if you look at... Great Britain's performances over the next decade, they definitely turned it around, you know, to some extent. But just at the same time that the Invincibles were playing, you were witnessing the start of careers such as Ellery Hanley, Gary Schofield, possibly Lee Crooks, or he might have started 10 years earlier, who knows, (laughs) you know, Andy Gregory, Joe Lydon, Sean Edwards, the names just go on. All those names to me to scream English rugby league to me. I loved all those players. And the thing about it is those players had already been developed. They were either already playing in the top flight in English rugby league or were about to debut. They became the core of that team from basically the 1984 touring party to Australia onwards. So did England just get lucky with a golden generation of players coming through? Had the changes they brought in actually had that much of an influence or was it just a golden generation? Well, I want to ask you this question because, for example, Canberra in the early 90s, Clyde, Stuart, Daly, all these young kids come through at the same time. Is it just luck? Because before and after, they've had a shocking junior system, you know yeah. what I mean? So, and with the English team as well, it's, it's got to just be luck of the draw, right? Yeah, but is it? That's the thing. Like, Canberra's a great example because I think with Canberra, you had a couple of things happening at the same time. You had Mal Meninga going to Canberra, then Bennett, Belcher, you know, Peter Jackson, getting this Queensland influx just before you had, you know, Stewart coming over from Rugby Union, Daly and Clyde coming up through the juniors. So it just all came together at one perfect time. It made Canberra an attractive destination for a short period of time. But outside of that, no one wants to move to Canberra. So how much do you put on Canberra systems and Canberra's structure and their junior development and how much do you put on them getting lucky i think it's you want to have the best systems in place to take advantage of the luck yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and i guess in terms of great britain that's kind of where i started on ranking these kangaroos squads where you could say that it is an evolution and by 1994 you had a team just playing at the very height of how football could be played but England were good enough because their coaching had improved, their fitness had improved, that they can beat Australia in the first test while being a man down for, you know, what was it, 75 minutes or something? Like for basically the whole test match, being a man down mm. and going on to win that game against a team that on paper is far better. So I think once you do put the right systems in place and you improve how you go about your business, then you get to a standard. And It's probably not going to be enough to win you those series, but it will put you on some kind of a level pegging. I think you're right there. But so let's look at the rest of the 80s and the 90s to just look at what happened. So the next major meeting between the two sides was the 1984 tour in Australia, which Australia, again, won quite handily, 25 to 8, 18 to 6, and 20 to 7. It's funny that you don't hear much about that. 
in between the 82 and 86 tours? You don't hear the 84 stories very often. Well, I think this in some ways goes back to another thing I asked Tony about was the fact that State of Origin comes in in 1980 and we always hear it from the Australian side that something had to change because New South Wales and Queensland was dying as a concept. You know, they were getting like less than 2,000 people to matches and there was just no point in it. You know, Queensland were just getting belted every game and like, why are we even doing this? But the other side of it is, is that there was a void that needed to be filled because test matches were no longer doing it. Like they just weren't competitive enough. So state of origin comes in and almost instantly Australia versus England just doesn't mean as much. Yeah. But then the tours did mean something. Yeah. And I think that's off the back of, you know, the tradition and the, you know, if you weren't a kangaroo, no matter how good you were, you couldn't go to the reunions, you know. <laughs> Bob McCarthy would be standing at the door going, Fatty, what are you doing here, mate? <laughs> how does Bob Hagen feel? <laughs> but, yeah, like when you think about the stories you hear in that era, outside of the tours, it's the New Zealand team and, you know, Kevin Tamady and Greg Dowling and, you know, Graham Lowe and, and Olsen Philippina and all, all the rest of it. That had really replaced... Great Britain as the big rivalry in this time. It's funny because you go back to 2008, New Zealand, when they won the Tri-Series, people are hanging out for competitive international rugby league always. Yeah. Just one day we'll get the. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, Great Britain haven't really been a serious competitor, you know, ever since this, ever since we're talking about in the early 80s. New Zealand, like it ebbs and flows. Like how long does a team have to be a legitimate rival and a legitimate threat to challenge state of origin as the pinnacle of, you know, intense representative football. Well, I refute that slightly because 1990, they would have won the series. Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. A miracle. So if they win that, how does it look? Yeah, yeah. Might change the direction. Yeah, exactly. We're jumping the gun a bit. We will get to 1990. So 1986, the unbeatables do the same thing, win every game, not to the same extent and I think everyone was kind of expecting that that's how it was going to play out but interestingly it was met with really good crowds and after a couple of tours where they lost money it was a financial success so I think by this point there was an idea that we've got the team that can challenge you know we've got Ellery Hanley and and the rest so you're starting to see some optimism about the Great British team even in the wake of another complete wipeout and then Maybe the most influential thing of all, the next year, Mal really appointed coach of Great Britain. Yeah. But like that financial windfall, was that because they had Rowdy on the turnstile of County? <laughs> <laughs> and that leads to 1988, which on the face of it, you know, a 2-1 home victory to Australia. They won the first two matches pretty easily. So on the face of it, not much had changed. It was the same old story. But this was in the back of a lot of off-field issues with the tour that meant that it was nowhere near a strong touring side as it could have been. This started with Des Drummond and Joe Lydon, who were excluded to the tour after both being involved in different incidents involving spectators. (laughs) Which, you know, isn't how you you want to start your tour. That's exactly how I'd picture English rugby league players to act, though. Like someone mouths off in the crowd and give give them a smack in the chops. They had Steve Hampson out with a broken arm, Andy Goodway, who chose to stay home to open a restaurant, and then you had players getting injured on tour. So Gary Schofield, Sean Edwards, and Lee Crooks all 
failing to finish the tour with injury. Hang on, you can't gloss over that. There's got to be an episode on the Andy Goodway restaurant, surely. (laughs) (laughs) That's insane. I mean, it is insane, but I also think we'd hear, you know, similar stories from the Australians at this time. Like, I mean, I don't think Terry Lamb was opening any restaurants, but he was certainly, like, happy to just bypass rep football for some reason. (laughs) So he could play 350 first-grade games. (laughs) But so they were down on player strength and, you know, lost the first two tests, The you know. So the third test was a dead rubber, but they managed to get a famous victory, winning 26-12 to that was, you know, seen as this really inspirational, you know, like a, a huge victory for the English team. A change with the cricketers becoming good and then the um, the Olympic success, the London Olympics, the psyche changed. But for since 1966 to, I don't know, 2005, they would just had this loser's mentality where they were happy just for like consolation <laughs> wins and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. I had that in my notes as well. So like when you hear any English like player or, you know, journalist, commentator, talking about that third test win, they give it this like Rourke's drift significance and, you know, what a brave effort it was. And it's like, yeah, you know, great win, you know, later platform, further successes in the future. But like it's one match, like a dead rubber, your first win in over 10 years. And it was actually like the lowest crowd at a test match since like 1911 or something. They only had 15,000 at the SCG for it. Like that is how far... England had fallen, you know, in the Australian mindset. So, well, without being too negative, I mean, a wins a test match, wins a test match, win, but dead rubber. Australia's aren't going to be, you know, fully on the accelerator, are they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, you could say it was a losing mentality, and yeah, in some ways, that's very true. But I think there is a truth there that it signified something. It signified that this team was different, and that laid the foundation for 1990, winning the first test, 1912. And then the second test at Old Trafford, you know, in my opinion, the greatest test match of my lifetime. I wasn't there in 1914 for Rourke's Drift. I can't comment on the Battle of Brisbane or or any other test you could name, but I can't think of anything that comes close in, you know, the last 50 years or so. Talk about, I mean, they saved the whole series on the bell. I mean, heartbreak for the English. Yeah, yeah. It's so Great Britain to lose like that. <laughs> I know. And I uh, invite listeners, if they haven't heard it already, to listen to my chat with Dave on the Hypothetic RL. I actually spent an hour with Dave talking about this test match and what would have happened if Great Britain had actually managed to win that match. What kind of effect that would have? Because that's something I'm genuinely interested in. It would have given them a huge shot in the arm and the game would have grown a whole lot more over there. I asked Tony Collins about this in my interview and, you know, he agreed with me that the structural issues were probably going to be too difficult to overcome. But I really do believe that it would have made a huge difference to to how rugby league was perceived in England. At a time when the game had like a small national profile and you had like a a two-year window until the Premier League came and, and just swamped everything, I think that test match victory would have meant something. Yeah, definitely, mate. And, you know, the way that the third test went, a 14-0 win to Australia, it was like everything was riding on that test match. It's just um, just brutal. But as part of my interview with Dave, I went back and watched that game and like, my God, what a game of football that was and what a genius Amazing. Cliff Lyons is. Yeah. If we had to give one game to the aliens, you'd give them that one, wouldn't you? I can't believe that try that went through, you know, 18 pairs of hands 
you know, Cliffy about eight of those pairs. That try <laughs> and the, you know, the game-winning try to Mal at the end. Like, it's so funny to think of both of those being in the same game. Yeah, just amazing. And the intercept and, yeah. But, yeah, so that was unfortunate and that was probably their best chance. So, 1992 in Australia. Uh, Australia won the first test 22-6. Great Britain the second test 33-10. to and Australia winning 16-10 to retain the Ashes. But this goes to show, like, from 1990 through 1994, that's three series without a dead rubber. So, you know, that's something that Great Britain had got to the point where every series was, they had a chance, and, you know, they were right in it. It does remind me of the Queensland run against us in Origin, where they just had the closers that we didn't have, yeah. Lockyer, et cetera, yeah. Cam Smith. It was just the same with those uh, Great Britain teams. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you think about those, you know, eight in a row from Queensland, how many games were won by, you know, two or four points and how many two, I think, you know, all but one of those were like 2-1 series victories. I saw in your notes you said that you still remember the buzz from the 92 win in the home series. Yeah, I loved it, man. I still remember it. And I remember loving Gary Schofield so much just because the look, you know, the English look and the class, the porcelain white skin with the Nigel Mansell mustache and the big boxy shoulder yeah. pads and the great ball <laughs> playing. It's just awesome. And this was like peak Gary Schofield in many ways. Like he was just coming off what ended up being an unofficial Golden Boot win, which we'll get to in the next episode of this chapter. But this was probably peak Schofield this era. Well, it's almost like the Laurie Daly trajectory uh, come through as a centre and then become an awesome ball player and even better ball player than Daly, really. He had time like Lewis. Mm. And then that same year, Australia win the World Cup final 10-6. Again, like Great Britain hanging in there. Uh, And then finally, the 1994 tour, which... Remember it like it was yesterday. We covered it in one of our early chapters of this series. But like to me, you know, forgetting... Which is the best of those four touring squads? I think the age we are, like that squad will always be my favourite. It's definitely age dependent on the place in your heart. And 94, God. Yeah. I will say this though, I think 94, the gap was there. Yeah, I was going to say that. And obviously we don't really get to find out because Kangaroo Tours, as they had been played, were on the way out regardless of Super League. But the coming of Super League saw Kangaroo Tours, you know, stopped but I think you can see that the difference in class was there and the 1995 World Cup proved it and really, like, it hasn't been close ever since. Well, it's a bit crook when you've got Daly Stewart, Meninga, Renoff and then um, Brad Clyde and you just chuck Brad Fittler in it lock. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit how you're going if you're <laughs> the opponent. So this is where we're ending on today and we're going to come back in the second part of this chapter and look at the domestic game over the course of the 80s into the 1990s. But I think this is the thing. Whatever changes England made to their systems and their structures, Australia were always going to have the pick of the best players. And, I mean, put that down to, you know, the introduction of the pokies in the 50s, put it down to rugby league being the dominant winter sport in Queensland and New South Wales. These are just like big things that I don't know if there was anything England could have done to like sufficiently bridge that gap. I don't understand why it still can't be bigger. It's quite a big sport in the north of England still. I don't think that's a good excuse that's, um, you know, we've got AFL, we've got soccer, we've got union, we've got bloody the ABL. We've got, <laughs> we've got all sorts of competitors here as well. <laughs> uh, but 
Uh, I don't know if we have missed anything. If anyone has some other grand theories or solutions, you know, things they could have done back then, things they could still do now, would love to hear them. Uh, as I said, we're going to continue English talk for the next two weeks. So in the second part of this chapter, we're going to look at the domestic game. And then in the final part, we're going to look at everything that happened after Super League arrived. But for now, that's it for this episode. So as I said, uh, English fans in particular would really love to get your perspective uh, on anything we've talked about in this episode. So please uh, hit us up on Facebook and Twitter, therugbylegdigest at gmail.com. But yeah, hope you enjoyed this episode. Such an interesting uh, topic, man. Yeah, I have learned so much about things like I kind of feel ashamed that I didn't know more about before researching this. So I hope this was similarly uh, enlightening for some of our Australian listeners, but there's much more to come in the next two parts of this chapter. So that's it for now. Uh, we will speak to you soon. Take care. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.